Hello, friends. Welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes. Since starting the Nexus newsletter, many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop, and we have. After a few weeks of those wonderful conversations, I realized I needed to record and share them with our growing community. So here we are, the Nexus podcast is born. This is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together. All right, episode 19 is a conversation with Tyson Suter, Global Business Development Manager for Digitization at Siemens HQ in Switzerland. This is a great primer, maybe even a masterclass on selling smart building solutions, whether you're selling internally or externally. We talk about selling semantic modeling, analytics, advanced controls, digital twins, indoor air quality, and even carbon reduction. No buzzword was left out. This episode of the podcast is directly funded by listeners like you who have joined the Nexus Pro membership community. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexus.substack.com. you also find the show notes there, which has links to Tyson's LinkedIn page. Oh, and by the way, if you take a look at your podcast feed and you're missing some episodes, that's because those episodes are exclusive to members of Nexus Pro. Sign up for a pro membership to get your personal podcast feed with access to all the episodes. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast Episode 19. Tyson, welcome to the Nexus Podcast. It's awesome to finally have you on. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, James. Yeah, so Tyson Suter. My role at the moment is Global Business Development Manager for Digitalization. I requested a buzzword in my job title. That was actually part of the deal. But I've been in the industry for a while. We met many years ago at a Haystack Connect conference, I believe. Yeah, Tampa, Florida. Yeah, we yeah. had several, several alcoholic beverages, me and Leon, and I don't know who else was there, but I, I bugged Leon about that a couple of weeks ago. He actually didn't remember. I was offended. So shout out to Leon. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's a great conference too. But so I've been in the industry for what, 14, 15 years now. Started as a air conditioning and refrigeration mechanic as a trade, actually. So I did that for, for nine years and that included installing tritium systems, actually R2, so a couple of versions ago, into okay. AX, for anyone that knows this terminology, and but also installing chillers, rooftop units, compressors, doing maintenance on big commercial buildings and, and retail buildings. And so I did that for nine years, and very good base for where, what we're doing now. And then I joined a startup, actually, called Bueno Systems, um, built environment optimization. So you mentioned Leon, Leon Werfel's the CEO. I was one of their first employees, I think maybe three, and... During the four years I was there, we grew that company to, I think it was 70 people when I left. I'm not sure, maybe a bit less, but quite a lot of people. And yeah. we did everything from, that's where, that's where we met, data analytics, pulse detection, maintenance replacement. So really connecting to all the systems in a building. So air conditioning, vertical transport, fire, car parks, waste. My role there was in between a bit of sales, but mostly I ran the integration team. So the, the the deployment team, so getting data out of buildings. So we did some really interesting integrations going into smart buildings, 
and and really actually connecting the systems up. It's what do you mean very... by those air quotes? What do you mean by smart buildings and air quotes? There's been there's a few buildings that we worked at where it was nearly finished, and they're like, oh, by the way, we need to connect all these systems, and because we we you know we're a smart building, so we need to have all the systems together. So you have to come in and then really connect the systems together. All these systems that are completely separated and no design to bring come and bring to bring them together. So yeah, there's some really interesting stuff. We did over 200 buildings, over a thousand supermarkets. It was, it, the scale was huge. And that was one of the best experiences I've had in my working career, working at Bueno, the people I'm still very close to and very friendly with. And I only left actually because I got an offer for a, another company called Willow, which is a digital twin company you're, you're probably familiar, of course you're familiar with, which is another Australian startup. We have a lot of good, a lot of good Australian startups where I'm originally from. And this was a design construction company creating software for digital twins. And I really, I've worked in construction sites. I did some commissioning work and DL, like handover, DLP, defects liability period work, but never really to the point where I'm looking at, you know, the time, the cost, the 4D, 5D, the operational twin 6D, not really understanding to a, to a level where I could discuss this with these people that are digital experts in this space. Um, so I, I took the job and it was a really difficult decision. I left on very good terms with everyone in Bueno. Surprise to, to everyone, I think even myself, but I was feeling a bit comfortable there. I think it was time to, to learn something new. So I was there for a, around a year and it was one of the very intense period of, of my life because you get thrown into a construction site and you're working with every services in the building. So you need to know hydraulics, architecture, civil, electrical. Yeah. And then the automation and live data component. All of this is, it's a big, steep learning curve, but they had their digital enterprise team, like the, the people that design the digital language on how to build these buildings. It was incredible. So I just soaked up. Yeah. I, Really, to the point when I left there, I felt comfortable at any of those meetings because the people that I was around were just incredible. So I was very lucky to work with, especially, specifically, there's a guy called Daniel Kalnitz. He's, he's, I was going to say, relatively young around my age, but he's so knowledgeable in this space. So I really I, I latched onto him and he taught me a lot when I was there. So very lucky, very lucky. And during this time, I was actually, I wasn't looking at all, but I got an offer come up through Siemens and... Originally, I thought it was Siemens, like Asia somewhere, because I was, I was based in Melbourne, in Australia, and it is based in Switzerland. And the first thing I had to do was, okay, where is Switzerland? That's the first thing I have to check. And then once I worked that out, I was like, okay, this could be interesting. And it, it turned out it was in the headquarters of Siemens. And I've always wanted to see what these big automation companies are like. The, like I said, the big four, Siemens, Honeywell, Schneider, or Johnson's. Yeah. They're, they're the big players in our, in our industry and spending so much of my time in that world. I'm like, I'm very curious to see what this was like. And the role sounded very much to my skill set. It was coming in and, and what I do now is working with the product team on, on looking at the, the tools we use and, and where, where we need to be going forward and, and some requirements, but then also helping create the sales strategy and then also the delivery method. So working with Global HQ, so you have to work with each region and help them understand this is what we're selling, this is how we sell it, this is how we talk to these specific customers, and this is how we then deliver it at scale, which is very important. And it's so far, 
it's been probably the, the first six months, it was a pretty easy start compared to any other job I had because I worked for startups where there is no such thing as an onboarding process. The onboarding process is, oh, hey, we've got six jobs for you. Um, right, right. <laughs> Get started right now. Yeah, you're late. But okay. this one, you know, I kind of eased into it. And they, once I got started, it, it really just got very busy. And you really have to earn the credibility within the company. Speak to the people. They need to know who you are. Trust that you can actually help them in some way. And then add that to their process. And once you get going, it really, it doesn't stop. And then and eventually you're like, yep, this is back to my old working state. Busy and happy. Got it. Cool. I think based on that introduction, everyone that's listening to this is realizing why you're on the podcast because you have a very rare skill set in our industry. You just gave basically every level of everything that's hot right now. You've seen it from the ground level. You've been inside a chiller. You've set up automation systems. You've done analytics on those automation systems. You've seen the digital twin process from construction or design all the way through operations. It's, it's awesome to be able to pick your brain. So thanks for coming on the show. I made sure that I did a one one job per buzzword. That's, that was really important. Yeah, got them all. that's exactly what Collected you did. You got analytics, digital twin. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I don't know if mechanic is quite a buzzword at this point. No, I what, think it's pretty what, cool what, though. Yeah, digital mechanic. I don't know. Maybe it says, <laughs> I, I plugged a computer into a chiller. Does that count? Maybe that counts. I think it counts. Yeah, you digitized something. That's the internet of things. There you go. You have it all. Yeah. There you go. So at Siemens, I want to hit, we're not going to talk a whole lot about Siemens specifically today, but uh, I think just from my standpoint of trying to understand the industry, can you talk a little bit about all these different acquisitions that have happened lately? So maybe start with Comfy and what it means for Siemens to uh, acquire Comfy. Yeah, so it's been a while since we've bought these companies, but it was actually one of the reasons that I even thought that maybe Siemens could be the right company for me. And they bought or invested, bought Comfy, J2 Innovations and Enlighted. So Comfy, we'll start with, is they've been around for a while. They were at these real tech IVCon conferences and they came in and said that we're going to control buildings and be the connection to people. And if you think about our industry, we don't really build technology for the tenant. Like we build technology to control the building, but not interact with the people within that building always. And we create tools for that. And then that's just the way it always is. And it's still a very important and large part of our industry that you can't move away from that. It's right. not an easy thing to do to control a building. There's very large technical steps. But Comfy is the way to be able to say, how can we actually connect the world? Really bring them together somewhat. Not to the point where you have a single user turn on your chiller. That definitely is an ideal. But have some way where people can feel like they're interacting. There's a, back when I was a, a with a fridgy in Australia, but air conditioning mechanic, refrigeration mechanic, if you'd get an air conditioning complaint, the first thing you'd say, yeah, we'll go adjust the set done. And, do, and that would solve 80% of your problem. People want to have some feeling that they have control over their environment. And then they need some control over their environment. That's what we're really learning. So this company is an interesting way to say, okay, let's actually give them the ability, a controlled ability, but the ability to interact with the space. And then, but also give that feedback and say, if you like a thermal zoning, you can go sit in this area. Or if you want to control your light levels to your own requirements or, or book meeting rooms or catch up with people, this is the stuff that the industry has to get there. And Comfy was the first mover to do this, really. 
So it's a very interesting purchase. And we're seeing like daily that the interaction between the two companies is getting closer and closer. And the value bundle is just very interesting to me. Because I think if, if especially this current situation where there's going to have to be a much better utilization of space. And that's what Comfy enables. Cool. That's fascinating. And you mentioned the learning aspect of it too. So when you're seeing the tenant or the occupant, doesn't have to be an office building, the occupant interact with the built environment, you're going to learn so much about how people interact with spaces. And that's really cool. What about Enlighted? I know that Comfy and Enlighted have you know their own synergies as well, but how do they come into play? Yeah. So they've got a very interesting offer where they're looking at creating that IoT network within a building. When this, the IoT buzzword phase came into play and the first question everyone was like, oh, I've got these great $5 sensors. Let's just chuck them all through your building. And then people did it and they're like, oh, who, what are these? What are we doing with these? Who's controlling these? Why is there a bunch of sensors that we anyone can access just installed all over my building? So what they did is they said, okay, what's in every building? Lights. Okay, they can be the infrastructure to be able to create this wireless network. So they come at a price point that makes sense. They allow you then to connect sensors to it. Now, if you look at Siemens, you look at Comfy, you look at digital services, all of these things are only as good as the sensors available. Enlighted enables that. It becomes that infrastructure for these tools. So it totally makes sense that these are two purchases they made. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, like picturing the pieces of the puzzle getting pulled together. What about J2 then? So I, I've have a little bit of familiarity with J2 but don't know a whole lot about like how Siemens plays in because the confusing part for me is like Siemens already had building automation system solutions before. So how does that work so out? J2 is, you, you know, you had that core group of people from Tridium back in the day and they, they went everywhere and they made all these great companies. J2 mm-hmm. is another one that for me, where they said, we've always done automation in this way, but why and how can we do it better? And the way that they're taking and using, you know, semantic models and, and, and tagging and changing how you actually deploy and design a BMS is very interesting. And the way that I think the Siemens utilize this is that they have a huge market available to them and it's not always going to be suitable for just a Siemens Zego CC product. J2 feels that small to medium uh, space is, is, is growing for all the, all the players in this space and J2 is a perfect fit. And it's also a fantastic integration tool. You can put it on equipment. You can scale it away down to microcontrollers. So it's very flexible, very powerful, and can fill the gap anywhere that we need it to. So we've actually found that it's been a very good solution, especially if you have non-Siemens products already installed. Install J2. This, it just makes sense. It's a great integration tool. So it does really work well. And not every customer is going to want to have to, to buy the Siemens Zico CC with field controls. Fine. We can offer any solution. We can become agnostic to our customers. And maybe it's not the right time to do an upgrade and it's the right time to do a partial upgrade, just a a front-end graphical upgrade. And that's where J2 is perfect for that. Got it. Cool. That's exciting. You said that was probably one of the reasons that played into your going to Siemens because that those are three very exciting acquisitions. So cool. It makes sense strategically too. Like that you can see where the market's going and they're like, okay, we need to get into this space and start competing. So it did impress me when I saw those purchases. Absolutely. Cool. So we're going to talk about selling tech smart building tech in a minute. I want to get into my new favorite question though first and get your answer to it. So you've seen my new favorite question is why are buildings decades behind other technologies? And so I think your answer is going to be very important because you've seen it from so many different angles. So what is the Tyson Suter answer to, the, to James's favorite question? 
So I think about this way too often. When I first started, I, I remember going into a building and seeing an automation system and thinking, this is very old software. And it wasn't that old. But then as you start going through buildings, you start seeing a pattern. So the facade looks great. You, you, you open a cabinet and what's not looking so great is the pneumatic system that's been in there for 40 years, but it works. So they're not gonna upgrade it. So a lot of it comes to when you install a system, you're not installing it for two years or three years. You're, you're sometimes installing that system for 10 or 20 years. So if we come up with data analytics, which really in our industry haven't been around for that long, really at scale, if you think about it. People have talked about it, but it's fault detection before now. So if you have to have an acceptable amount of data in the right intervals, in the right structure, and you were cutting edge at the start of our industry, that's 3% of our buildings. So the 30-year replacement cycle, that's a very extreme case, but let's say on average seven to eight years in reality. I, I saw buildings that still had pneumatic systems that stopped being installed 20 years prior to me starting oh, yeah. my trade, still existing. And America has a lot of these, actually. Yeah, the US has, we have a lot of pneumatic systems that are still out there, definitely. Yeah, and, and working pretty well. Bit of oil, but it's okay. But this is the problem that we find is that it's, it's never the first thing that is thought of when someone's looking at a building. Like a tenant's not going to walk in and be like, what a fantastic automation system. They're going to look in and say, oh, the, the foyer is very nice or the, the facilities, the, the gym, the lift, all of these things, they get upgraded. And I think what we see is that people, if you walk into a, a new building and if you, especially if you've been part of the design phase, you can walk in there and think this is, it's a beautiful building. Like uh -huh. this is an A-grade, top-of-the-range building. But if you've been part of the design phase, all the cuts that have been made to the subsystems and the systems behind that. And until it becomes the forefront of the tenant experience, it's, it's always going to be cut first. So one, I would say it's a very long capital life cycle and uh -huh. a very high capital expense. Two, it's not at the forefront of a tenant who is paying the bills. So until we can to influence both those phases, and then one might take longer than the other, it's going to it's going to take us a while to get to the technology required to actually bring us into competing with other industries. Beautiful, yeah. And and just to add a little color from my experience there, I, I did a lot of work with universities and healthcare systems over the past ten years or so. And in those two areas, those two different verticals, you have a lot of donors. So a donor will come in and say. I'm going to donate 20% of my will to this organization. And what happens is, and I've seen it everywhere, especially at a university where a donor will come in and they say, I want my name on the library, John H. Smith library at this university. And I've always said, no one says, Hey, I really want my name on this new chiller plant over here. Yeah. Or I really <laughs> want my name on the, uh, on the energy dashboard. Yeah. And I always thought that was a fascinating, it's just not sexy to automate buildings, at least for people that nice. don't listen to this podcast. And it doesn't bring people in the door, does it? Yeah, right when I walk in, I'm like, who's got the thermostat and what, what sort of HVAC system is this? Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. I love that answer. Thank you. I'm getting unique answers every time I ask this question too. And so I feel like what I need to do is bring them all together into one, you know, synthesized answer from all uh -huh. the guests. I would be very curious to see how the answers change depending on what their current career path is. Because I yeah. think that would definitely, because you're hearing the reasons every day and it's probably influencing you through some like unbiased 
recognition. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's transition to sales. So your, what did you say your title was again? Global Business Development Manager Digitalization. Okay. So Siemens pays you to know about selling smart building stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk about just selling smart building tech in general. So you have these conversations every day. So what are the keys to mm. getting started selling smart building tech? Yeah. It's funny how many times I'd have the same conversation with people as well. Like you do end up repeating. And when you get asked a question, the person's always thinking, oh, I've got him. The first He's time never answered this one before. Yeah, exactly. So I was pretty lucky when I was at Bueno where over the course of three years, possibly thousands of meetings with customers. So oh, you really yeah. get like this speed learning course of, okay, you're really going to learn how to answer this. So I think it's smart building tech always starts with not going to a customer and saying, I'm going to sell you analytics ever. You never start with, I'm going to sell you this. You always go to the customer and say, what are you trying to achieve? Like it has to be from a consultative approach. I've, and this could be maybe just from my own experience, but the success that I've seen and the kind of patterns where you can see other people being successful in this space is come in as an expert, come in as a consultant and say, I want to understand what you need to do. Don't tell me what you want to buy. Tell me what you need to do. And once you understand they don't want a digital twin, they want to save energy. Okay, that's two different things that like, they don't always go hand in hand. So always starting by asking the customer, what do you want to achieve? What systems do you have today? And how big is that gap? So if it's an existing building, you can really say to achieve this, we need to connect to these different systems. And here's the gap that you're going to have to expect to bring together somehow. Um, if it's a design phase, you say, what is the digital language that you want to prescribe for all your buildings? Not just this one, because there's no point having a digital solution if you have a portfolio of buildings for one building. So really understanding, okay, if this is your plan for one building, then it, it's got to be a grouping of buildings or a type of building, fine. But you need to have the same somewhat goal that has stretch marks. So this is an A-grade building we aim here and we scale down as we go to the, the lower grade buildings. And if you can provide that consistency, that's when you'll see success in selling digital services. You don't walk in and say, yeah, we're going to give you this tool and everything works, it's all fine. There's the process of understanding where are you today? How do we get there? Because some customers, they might not even have a BMS. And that's when you need to say to them, okay, maybe you need to focus on putting some network controllers together. And that's fine. But don't skip the steps. There's no point. But let's build something that's going to be sustainable and actually beneficial long term. And so that's the first point. So really go along for that journey with the customer. The next is making sure that you're selling that something that has continued value. So if you sell energy savings projects with some sort of digital offering, what happens in year two and three when you stop saving energy? So we're in a pretty cutthroat industry when it comes to, to budget. So capital expenditure, CapEx, is something that once you get the decision made, it's made, you get it, the project, great, all is good. You don't have to revisit it that often, maybe to justify the cost once. But operational expense, that is a cost that you need to, to be able to show value year on year, every year. If you save or add a huge amount of value to a customer year one and add no value year two, year three, you're gone. And the way that these corporations work and these companies work, every year they review their budget, they look at the line items on the OPEX or operational expense, and they say, why are we spending money on this? And they should be doing that. That's their job. That's their responsibility. So if you're not adding value from the previous year, they don't care if you saved 30% the first year, why continue paying for it? So that's where a lot of 
this smart building tech in our industry, they always come in as a SaaS and they say, we want to be a SaaS. And if you're going to be a SaaS, great. You have to continue to add value. And that value doesn't disappear ever. It has to continue and it has to be able to, to sustain multiple patterns and multiple years. So it's not that easy. So you have to be very careful on what you sell because you can be successful for one year. And we've all seen those companies that come in, make a really big noise for one year and then disappear because they don't have a sustained value selling proposition. And that is very critical to be able to sell the technology in our industry. It's fascinating. There's so many places I want to go there. One first thought is I've seen it happen and you mentioned it a little bit. I've seen it happen where say you're installing some sort of FDD package, you install that package, you implement an initial round of energy conservation measures. Those get implemented if you're lucky. Let's just be honest first. If you're lucky, those first just get implemented. <laughs> yeah. But let's just say that you get implemented. Six months later, they're implemented, they're verified, you've created savings. And so I think what I'm hearing from you is that what people often find next is that what have you done for me lately attitude? So yeah, what's the next thing? Okay, so how do you how do you think about that then? So it, it seems like to me that the value proposition for selling a, a solution can't be a single value proposition. It has to be, if it's energy, it's maybe creating the savings and then maintaining the savings. But then it probably also needs to be like bringing in maintenance savings and things like that, that are multidimensional rather than just one type of value prop. Yeah. So I love selling these kind of tools because you're not selling something that doesn't have value. If you don't have value, it's clear. Like it's very clear. So you've nailed that point. So energy savings, so important yet. As soon as you say, I can save you energy, every customer's like, great. What else can you do for me? And so if you really want to become sticky as part of the process in a good way, like really to be able to say, I need to be part of the life cycle of this building. So that is where you have sustained value as a technology solution. So if you come in and say, you have technicians on site, security guards on site, cleaners, all these people, they're part of the operational budget and they don't get removed every year. They don't get reduced, ideally. If you can add the same amount of value as these people or more, that's how you then prove your case to a building owner. And that's how you become part of their processes. So yes, maintenance is the logical solution. If you look at how we do maintenance stay in buildings, I'm sure you've seen some task lists that, that some of them are quite historically based on older methods of running a building and there's ways to improve this. And I'm always cautious because you have statutory requirements in, in countries. There's, there's some critical assets. There's no such thing as a blanket reduction. That's ridiculous. And there's no such right. thing as a pure software solution either. It has to be looking at this and saying, okay, what can we do safely? How can we improve it? How can we do it without taking technical knowledge from the building or how can we do it without putting assets at risk? So if you can do that successfully, you're part of the process now, you're critical. Then your cost should be relevant to the energy savings you're making and the maintenance you're delivering. So maybe there has to be some sort of fluctuating fee there, some that goes up and down depending on the value you're adding. And that is how you then justify continuing your service. So there should be, year one and two, should be there should be more cost. That's just... If you want, like you said, if you want to implement energy savings, it's easy to find them. <laughs> the next step is then implementing them. If you want to do that, you need to invest. So I always start with explaining that to customers. There's an investment here. There's, you're not going to pay for the service and everything's fixed. Or you're not going to pay for the software and everything's fixed. The software helps you find the problems. You still need to fix them. So 
you have to be honest about every step of the way with a customer too. So the last thing you want is for them to turn on a smart building solution and go, oh, why isn't everything working? You're like, no, this is the first step. Now we fix the problem. Totally. And okay, so energy, maintenance, and then if I heard you from the beginning of this conversation, it, it might make sense then to get into the occupant sort of engagement, or is that the next step? Or how do you Definitely. view that sort of roadmap? So I think that, yeah, so energy, maintenance, and then capital and operational planning. So OPEX, CAPEX, those three things are, they're not future, that's today, we have to do that. That's bare minimum, in my opinion. If you don't mm -hmm. do that, if you can't help the facility manager reduce energy, do maintenance in a more efficient manner and help them do their capital and operational planning, try something else or, or be cheap enough to warrant it. The occupancy thing, that is when you need certain amounts of sensors, you need other solutions, you need some sort of, um, I won't go into any products, but you need some sort of you know tracking solution or not people, but measuring people coming in and out of floors, connecting to security systems, understanding space utilization. That is also incredibly valuable. But you can nearly have them as a joint solution or as separate solutions. And, and that's okay. You try not to sell everything to a customer. You really say, okay, do you, if you want that, great, let's do that. If you bring that into these other solutions, there's a huge value there. But not everyone's going to be willing to, to jump all the way in. Maybe you need to sell in incremental steps, like mm -hmm. ease in with one solution and then expand into further solutions. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to the Memori did this this webinar last month called Where Smart Buildings Go Wrong, I think. And and Mike Bruman from Vanti in the UK was the guest and he talked about the value of point solutions. So like a mm -hmm. single vertical within the building versus this holistic value proposition. I'm wondering how you think about it. You mentioned it's okay to have them all separate. How do you think about selling in terms of the gold standard, like the way that everyone probably wants to get, it would be to have everything integrated together, single platform versus like today, maybe it makes sense, like you said, to maybe have these silos maintained right now. So how do you think about that dichotomy? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely don't support the silo solutions, but I think there's a value in saying this system does this, this system does that, but they have to be they have to be some sort of in, interconnected through some sort of data structure or a common platform or some sort of centralized network, like a base building network with some sort of API or MQTT or backnet. doesn't matter as long as there's some sort of methodology there and strategy there. But the gold standard, I'm going to connect everything up into one building. That is the dream. And I've sat on the design phase and, and I've worked on your buildings and delivered some systems that actually work like this. And it worked really well. But again, the capital expense is so high that if you build a solution that only works with the gold standard, that's not a solution. So your solution, in my opinion, has to work with the silos and it should support that, but it also should work with the holistic, every system together. So I always say, like, start if, if you come into our industry and say, I've got a software solution, it's perfect. I need one second data, I need 47 sensors on my equipment and I need to have no latency on the network. Yeah, cool. So like 0.01% of our buildings. Like you really have to be realistic about this. And I'm really lucky to have that experience as an automation engineer and just seeing some horrific network and really thinking how, but when you see it over and over again, you're like, okay, this is just, they're old. And the industry's changed so quickly in terms of what's available today versus what's available 20 years ago. But the buildings haven't caught up to that yet. So yeah, I believe yeah, solution has to work on a silo, has to be able to work on one system, and it has to be able to scale up with 
amount of points and amount of complexity. And if you can do that, great. And if you're building a new system and they're helping a, a building owner, bring them along the way so that if you do a project that's in a silo, make it so that silo doesn't have to stay isolated in the future. It has the ability to be able to connect other systems, meaning make sure that it's networked some way, make some sort of data structure. We've, we've spoken at length about these things where it's, it's okay to do that, but really open it up for the future possibilities. Totally. I love that. It's almost like everyone needs to have in mind what the gold standard or what the holy grail, whatever we want to say is like the five-year, 10-year goal. But in the meantime, we're not going to be able to get there immediately. So being able to sell and like you said earlier, put these puzzle pieces together in a way that sets you up for that long-term goal. I love that point too, because that people, I think when they hear about these smart building technologies, and there's always two sides, there's a, the visionaries and they, they're 100% forward and you need these people. And then you have the automation people that are very cynical. <laughs> no, like this is never going to work. It depends on the day. I could be anywhere. And the point is, if you have a project, treat that project as if it's the whole building. So don't go, oh, the rest of the building's old. It doesn't talk to it. So it doesn't matter. Just build. Just upgrade mm-hmm. that part. Don't worry about future-proofing this. Like always keep in mind, every time you spend capital, every time you do service work, operational cost, that's an opportunity to bring that building to a standard. And I think this is where we can teach, or not maybe teach it condescending, but advise building owners to say, if you create the blueprint, the structure, the way forward, this is where I need to be. Every time you spend money in a building, that's an opportunity to get there. You don't have to do the whole building at once. Do it slowly, but make sure you're bringing it up to that level where you want to be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's your opportunity to take a step towards that five-year goal or whatever it is. So how do you, when you're selling to owners that don't have that vision though, what do you do then? Because I've experienced, I've experienced this so much, right? So mostly as an independent consultant, so coming in and seeing all these projects happening within a portfolio and realizing that no one has this vision in mind and all of these projects are being done in ways that don't, even if the owner decided what their five-year goal was, I, I would bet that these projects weren't walking them anywhere near or anywhere <laughs> any closer to that five-year goal. So how do you yeah. think about selling in that environment when that strategy, I call it a strategy, but it's really also a vision. That vision doesn't currently exist. Yeah, I would say persistence, repeating the values over and over again. It always comes back down to when you go into these, it's people just, They've got their project, they've got their budget, they have to hand over. It, it all makes sense why they can't see forward. I always, I'm very sympathetic towards this. And that you should always be sympathetic. You, you, there's no point getting frustrated for this. But this, in this case, I always just go back to saying, if you build this way, how are you going to achieve these solutions? And I always talk about software solutions as being the end goal. So if you want to... If you want to sell data analytics, if you want to sell digital twins, if you want to sell closed loop optimization and people, they, they can capture this and go, that's what I want. And that's good because they don't have the historical knowledge to, to understand what it takes to get there. So if that's what they want, you have to keep reminding them saying to do this, you need to be doing this today. Like it's a pretty lame analogy, but if you want a smart building, you really need a strong foundation, just like you would at building a normal building. You don't build it on a poor foundation. The digital infrastructure it requires the same strong foundation. So I go in and say, if you do it in this manner, you're not going to be able to achieve that. That's fine if that's what you want to do, but cross it off the list because that's not possible anymore. And I just re-import, 
I always, I never get caught up in the details of networks or controller choices or data modeling until I explain, oh yeah, these are gone. So the, all these solutions that you want to do in the end, they're gone now. So that's okay. If, that, if you're okay with that, that's continue <laughs> with that. If you're okay giving up everything you've ever wanted, that's completely fine. Yeah, but just no, value you really engineer to... everything out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's tough. It's tough. It's, and it's, you can't win. You can't win every battle. And when you find the right building owners who share that they have the same goals in mind and they're somewhat forward thinking, just support them and give them your knowledge and don't try and sell them on a specific solution. Because that, that, even if you sell them something once, fine. Yeah. What, what are you gaining there? Build those relationships and, and be able to advise them like ethically to say, no, this is the right solution. And it might not mm -hmm. be your solution today, but it will be eventually. So really treat them as a, as I, I nearly treat it as like a, an educational process or like I'm looking and going, okay, maybe my solution's not the best today, but this would be good for you today. This would be perfect. Totally. I really believe that this would work for you. And that will sustain long-term relationships. It just makes it easier. It just makes it easier to really sell what you believe in. Yeah, what I love about your approach here and your just overall attitude is that if someone that works for a building owner were to listen to this, they could apply these same approaches to selling internally. And you mentioned foundations. That's why I named the Smart Buildings course that the Nexus Smart Buildings course foundations, because these sort of attitudes, these sort of strategies are what every building owner needs to like wrangle internally. They, they need to figure this out internally and how like whoever the champion is, they need to figure out how to sell this to all of the stakeholders internally as well. So that's what's, that's why I think this conversation is so important. It's not just about all of the vendors out there learning how to sell better. It's also about a champion taking their organization on this journey as well. Just to add quickly to that is the best thing about selling this smart building tech is, it's more of a concept we're selling. We're not trying to sell a, a product or we're not trying to sell a specific thing. We're saying like, okay, this is what we want you to do. I, I don't really talk about products. I don't have to. I, sell, I talk about the concepts. And so it can work for anyone. And it's, just, it's nice to be able to say, I truly believe this is going to help you. Like you need this solution. I, I can't even fathom how you're running the building at the moment, but I know this will help you. And it's not going to be easy, but... We can do this and there'll be benefits. And, and, and by the end, when the value comes in, everyone will be high-fiving each other and it's going to be okay. Let's bring this down. So we've been talking about kind of high level selling. Let's bring this down to actual buzzwords, actual topics. Buzzwords <laughs> is a negative way to put it. These are very important solutions that people need to know how to sell, whether internally or externally. <laughs> so let's not make fun of the fact that our industry loves buzzwords, but let's start with one of your favorite topics, which is semantic modeling and standards for the organization. So how do you, it's something that you spend a lot of time on. How do you sell that very messy, <laughs> very difficult topic? I can, I think I've annoyed every single person I've worked with, uh, with this topic to the point now where I think if you ask me the solution to any problem, I'm probably going to say some sort of data modeling. So it's, if you look at like what we have in our industry today, it's, it's proprietary systems, not interconnected, separated systems, data structures that really don't align across companies, across countries, across the same company in the same suburb, the data will be entirely different. One building installed by one company and the same company next door, it's a completely different system, right. a different data structure. And everyone's like, oh yeah, it can't be, you know, can't be that hard. It, yeah, it is. It is really hard. And then you have certain installers that come in and, and they don't even put data naming on your on backnet, for 
I won't mention names here, but this, this stuff makes it very difficult. So I always start by saying naming conventions are, are great. If, as long as you don't stop there because they never work. They, they provide some structure. Structure is good. So put it in there, make it work. What's important is having some manner not to rely on a very specific name because the relationship between a temperature sensor on the wall and the relationship between a chiller on the roof has endless, endless variables. So the amount of equipment between that temperature sensor in the wall and that chiller could be, could be one, could be 60, it could be endless. Putting a naming, like naming something temp sensor, not very helpful, but understanding that this sensor is in a room, it's the air, the temperature is going to be fluctuating based on air. It's linked to this equipment. That equipment has several components. That data on those components is, it could be a VAV, it could be an AHU, it could be dual duct, it could be hot deck, cold deck. All of this is data that you can't cover with naming conventions. And if you want, a naming convention will only get you so far, but if you have a tagging methodology, you can do all these relationships like you could with a naming convention, but also make it so it's scalable. So if you look at this and say, I want to create a solution for a fan. Okay, so what type of fan? Just a generic fan. I have something that's going to work on any type of fan. Great. Now, how many versions of a fan are they in a, in a building? So if you do naming conventions, okay, now you need to write something for every scenario of a type of fan. Same with pumps. Same with sensors, same with actuators, same with dampers, same with... Okay, let's just apply some metadata and then we can just query one, one, one tiny bit of metadata. I just want to write a rule for every damper, not outside air damper, not uh, exhaust fan air damper, not supplier damper, not uh, whatever it could be, just a damper. Okay, cool, you write it once. And now you've written it for every single type of damper. So... If you get into this deeper and deeper into this world where you're like, I need to start adding value to a, to a big data set, you want to be able to say, ah, I don't want to do things 10 times. I don't want to do them. I don't want to do them more than once. And that's what data modeling allows you to do. It allows you to query huge amounts of data and actually do it in a very efficient manner. So the relationships have to be there. The metadata has to be there. And it doesn't stop just with attributes of a mechanical piece of equipment or it, it can continue into, okay, this is installed in this office space or this is this only operates during this time. These, these can all be tags as well. Like you can apply the context of the scenario or the, the environment you can provide, operating conditions. All of this can just be tagged onto equipment. So if you have some sort of standard, great. Now the, the second part to your question is the standards in the industry. Yeah, okay, great. But every industry has crazy amounts of standards. If you look at the construction industry, Kobe and like there's so many standards that you can list through and say okay all of them have value and same with our industry you have haystack you have brick you have iso ratings like on the standards here so if you want to be able to say, okay what's the best one that i get that asked a lot i'm like the, the best one is one that's consistent and that's a standard so the one that you have implemented <laughs> exactly so haystack 4 is coming and it's taking the best of relationships of brick and and, and the metadata of Haystack, as long as you have the, the mentality of, I need to create a standard with the goals we just discussed in mind, switching from your standard to the industry standard is easy because you've broken it up in a way. If you've done it correctly, switching to another standard, you do it once. That's the whole point of creating 
this data modeling. So it, it's important that we have as an industry come up with a standard, but don't let that stop you from doing a standard today. We need to invest more into some standards. I think open source community projects like Haystack 4, I see in this being quite successful long-term, but no one knows. But the more we engage with this, the more we're able to invest our time into this and to spread it, then we're going to see who wins. But create something now, make sure you have the right mentality of structuring it in a way where you have the relationships, you have the metadata. And then when you have to shift, it's a very easy process. Very easy process. Totally. Yeah. The way I see it is, I think you said the word scalable earlier. So it's enabling scalability, but it also enabling, it sounds like it's enabling like your future proofing your smart building. So you're enabling yourself to switch standards later, but also enabling you to get value out of your data later on. You don't even know what you're going to do with it yet, but the model allows you to have that set up in a way that you, whatever you want to do with it later, you can do something with it. Cool. That is a conversation that you and I were talking about. Like it's happening all over the world and it's totally fascinating. Yeah. So I just wanted to give a shout out for everyone that just is making the argument that Tyson just made here. And you summarized it very succinctly. So thank you for doing that. Just giving, I like giving an example of just, let's say you want to do something with fan data across your portfolio. How would you do that without a model? So, uh, and, and like, I did a podcast on this with Corey Mossman and we mm -hmm. used the, the example of a discharge air temperature sensor. So just pretend you want to do something with your discharge air temperature across your entire portfolio. How would you do it without a semantic model? So that's, I guess, where to start is to start providing examples to people to be able to sell the concept. Cool. Let's move on. If you're not worn out already, oh, we've got yeah, a couple right. more topics here. So let's go. So say your data is modeled. You want to do some analytics on it. How do you then sell analytics to a building owner? Yeah, this is my favorite topic, I think. But I always start by saying analytics is machine learning, AI, fault detection. These are tools. What I'm selling to you is a digital service. What I'm going to give to you is I'm going to solve your operational problems using these tools. So to a customer, I always start by saying it's very easy for me to find a thousand issues in your building. It's hard for me to close five issues. And I'm sure you've experienced this and we may have discussed this over a few years. And the biggest problem to a customer is that they don't need more issues. They don't need you to come and say, hey, here's all your problems. Great. I could have got a consultative report for this. What they need is these tools have to be able to say, here's the issues. Here's the highest priority issues. And here's why you have to fix it. So it has to come with a value assigned to it. And I say value a lot, but if you're not adding value to a customer, the customer shouldn't be buying it's just as simple as that. If we can close three to five issues off every month, you're going to have an incredibly high performing building. So what we do is we might not even find new problems. Like we're not changing the laws of physics here. We're, we're just finding really basic things and finding some more advanced things with analytics, with linear regression, with, you know, machine learning. But initially for the first few months, a lot of our value is going to come through fault detection and adding context to problems. So from there, you need to say, okay, once we do that, we add the cost to it, we add the risk to it, and then we, we prioritize it for you. So it's all about saying we use a bunch of tools, and I never say analytics in terms of just an offering. I always say fault detection, analytics, machine learning, all of these are a part of what we're offering to you. And each one of them has value and very high value, but together is where you start saying, okay, we're solving problems now. 
And this is a good, this brings up a good point around the buzzword of AI. If the bottleneck is closing three to five issues per month, what value does AI have for closing those? I think that's a good way to put it in context. It's like, that's the real bottleneck. No one needs but like more help uncovering issues. It's in using analytics to improve processes. And how do you clear up this confusion around like AI is going to wipe all of our butts and uh, make it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make our yeah, lives so I, much better? I think I was in that basket at one stage and then I started looking into it. And these tools are coming and they're incredibly impressive. Like when you see them working, you're like, wow, that's nearly scary how good these are. But it comes back to that first discussion point. If your tool requires the ideal scenario in terms of data quality, data availability, uptime, low latency, very stable networks, it's a very small percentage of our market. So I always say, yes, these tools, they're coming and they're going to have a huge impact on our market. But we're one of the few markets where we technology, you can't, it doesn't change overnight. It requires capital investment. So it's coming and it's getting closer. I feel like every year you're like, okay, well, I'm starting to see more and more impressive things. So I think it's, it's going to be a very powerful tool. I just don't think it has a big enough market share for us to be you know, worried that right. it's going to take over the building industry. Um, it, it's going to pay a big part of it though, definitely, eventually. I don't know what that time period is, but eventually. Cool. So the way I'm hearing it from you is if we don't have AI on our list here, but if you were to like sell AI, you're selling it as part of uh, a suite of analytics solutions. And that's exactly. where you see it playing right now. I think data analytics is incredible. If you do like linear regression, for example, that's really very valuable solution that if not future tech, that's what people are utilizing that every day. Yeah. It's expected in my opinion. If you look at that, that's fantastic, but that still requires a lot of data. And if you're trying to add value to a specific building, you can use external data from other buildings, but the, the best thing you can do is capture the data within that building on that piece of equipment. So you can mm -hmm. look at past performance and actually really determine how has this changed in performance based off previous operations. So yeah, that's fantastic. That's three months in, that's six months into a contract. So you need to add value all the way up into that point. So mm -hmm. that's where fault detection and more basic analytics plays a bigger part. Once you hit the six, seven month period, that's when you can get a bit fancy with some more linear regressions. But there's still a lot of value being efficiently finding problems with faults and, and root cause analysis. That, that, I can't stress how important that is. Not just, hey, here's a fault, the chiller failed, and let's put everything in the building into a fault. The tools totally. need to be smart enough to be able to go, hey, let's dig back a bit and say, let's ignore everything downstream. That's, you know, that's where our industry needs to be as a bare minimum selling these tools, but they have to be able to offer that. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, all right, let's move on. So we've talked about analytics, which is collecting data in a one-way uh, pull from the building. What about this new, I guess new, it's not really that new, but it's becoming more sexy recently, is this closed loop optimization. So instead of just a one-way pull, maybe you have a smart building software solution that's then sending smart commands back to the dumb, air quotes, dumb underlying <laughs> systems that were there before. So how do you think about that? And how do you educate owners and think about selling that solution? Yeah, I think initially I was very skeptical of this offering. Because there's a lot of skepticism it. in the market. Like I've talked to a lot yeah. of people that like, they're like, our clients don't want that. And they just like end of discussion. So mm -hmm. there, there seems to be a ton of resistance toward it. But yeah, it's 
in my opinion, that's what a controller is already doing. It's controlling to some sort of program. Now, your program actually, it led me down many paths. And I think Brainbox is the company that I'm thinking of. We had a great interview, definitely worth checking out. It was fantastic. And then we've, even with, in Siemens, there's you know, companies that are working on it and you see all these solutions coming up. A lot of universities are working on it. There's an Australian company that did it a few years ago um, at scale and I saw it firsthand. And I think that has a really large potential value. I just think that it's very difficult to implement. If you look at plant controllers for chillers, it, it's a similar concept, but the way that they approach it is like, hey, let's limit our variations of equipment. Let's focus on just doing chillers. And even that creates an, so many variables, what, like what type of chiller, size, how many pumps, primary, secondary, like how big is the piping, like what load are we looking at, refrigerant, ambient, like all of this, it's not easy. So I think this closed loop optimization, if you look at it from like the plant controllers and where they've seen success, they've seen success in, in environments that have less technical abilities and need a very good control system that is highly efficient and highly technical. That's where those solutions work perfectly. I see the closed loop optimization scenario if people focus on you know, DAVs or AHUs or certain types of equipment being extremely powerful because we're getting in our industry, we've always heard this, an aging workforce. The technical skills are leaving our industry and we're getting less and less technical people. These systems are going to be very important in parts of the world where we cannot replace that workforce, which is, it's going to be significant. So I think there's, I think there's a high value there, but I like looking at them from the approach from like chiller optimization, all these plant controllers. Let's focus on a type of equipment and expand from there. And if, if companies do it in that manner, I can see it being a very interesting sell. I think if someone comes in and says, I'm going to control your whole building through a closed loop optimization, I would be concerned. I'd be concerned and I would say that maybe we need to take a few steps before we get there. Let's not leap to that level because if, if you're controlling set points, for example, how many variations of programs hang off that set point? It's not, not all control algorithms are the same in these controllers. So there's going to be different variations of controls that happen once you can change a set point. So they're not going to have enough data to be able to really mimic these scenarios enough to learn from them. So I think it's a future tech. I think if they focus on controlling certain types of systems, I've seen some really incredible solutions in data centers with crack units that work really well, super efficient, you know, 30, 40% savings. I've seen some really interesting solutions with VAVs. And I walked into that being very skeptical, but walked away going, that, that's very impressive. So I think there's, there's a value there. I'm very interested to see where the pricing comes in for all these. Like how much money do you spend to get so much value? And what does that compare to a traditional manner oh, yeah. of investing in the systems? That's the unknown at the moment for me, because I, I think a lot of these companies are very competitive with their pricing. They come in quite aggressive, which I think is fine. We've got to see what happens in year two, year three, year four with these companies. Like we talked about, does that value proposition carry on? into the to later years or are we going down that startup mentality of win the market worry about profit later that, that's a difficult sell for me yeah i've seen really aggressive pricing and i've also seen really aggressive expensive pricing i've, I've seen like very significant high SaaS fees like capturing a significant amount of the savings that are being created 
This whole area is so fascinating to me. So I've written several essays on what I call advanced supervisory control. Cause like you said, yeah. we already have supervisory control. So we have to draw some delineation between <laughs> what we have and these new solutions. So I've made up this stupid acronym ASC, but I've been just like totally nerding out on this topic lately. And I should probably do a podcast on all the things I'm hearing from people about it. Cause it's fascinating to hear like just one example that I'll give you is like a very large analytics company. They, they told me that number one, their clients aren't asking for this, but I, I prodded them a little bit and realized that their integrations they've been setting up are not two way. So like they have thousands of installations set up and they like couldn't do it if they wanted to. And so it's, are, are you saying it's not a thing because your whole business is set up in a way that won't allow it? Or are you saying it's not a thing because like your clients really don't want this new tool? So I'm seeing this topic as like this other layer of disruption because it's not just disrupting the building owner's processes. It's also disrupting these players that have been innovative. And now maybe they're the ones that are holding back the industry from heading in the direction that we probably need to head. So I'll continue to nerd out and I think it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. And I, I love, I actually read everything you've written on this and I, I'm always the, the one question I ask when I meet with these companies and, and talk to them about their solution is like, where does the ownership stop? Hmm. Because once you control something remotely through a cloud, yeah, who's responsible for that now? That becomes a difficult discussion as well. So I think that doesn't mean it's a deal breaker. It just means, hey, how does this work and how does the service change? Who knows, five years from now, we could be saying that, how did we do this without these advanced service controls? Like, how, why would we ever program yeah. a controller locally? What was wrong with us? But that, we don't know, but I'm very interested to see where it goes. And I've heard something, I've seen some very impressive things. I just want to be able to say what happens a few years in, like how does this work long-term and how does it fit into the operational process? I'm, I'm super fascinated by this topic. Yeah, me too. Let's move on. Maybe we'll have to do like a, a full unpacking of that topic later. So let's talk about digital twins. So this is an exciting topic. So I'm actually moderating a panel at IBCon in a couple of weeks on digital twins. I don't know how I got myself in the middle of that conversation, but <laughs> so how do you think about selling digital twins? And I think that like one aspect I've heard from you so far in this conversation is there's like the design and construction aspect of it. And then there's the operations aspect of it. So mm -hmm. maybe you can hit both of those. Yeah. This is the main reason I, I changed into this industry because I kept hearing about digital twins and I, I think at one point I'm like, I don't really know what that means. So I started looking into it like, okay, I need to learn what this means because it kept coming up and I'm like, I don't know, it doesn't sound like, what, how would you ever do that? It seems impossible. Once you get into it, it and it goes back to my, my overall arching feelings towards selling smart building tech is as long as you're delivering value, it's going to work for the client. And a digital twin is in, in the design and construction phase is already proven its value tenfold. So if you do it correctly, like at the moment, if you're designing a building, there's going to be 3D drawings, there's going to be planning, there's going to be 4D and 5D time and cost planning involved in some way. There's going to be a BIM model. This is what it's all about. It's about saying, how can we utilize this process to be beneficial for the construction period? And what I found working on these construction buildings is, and through these processes is it is, as you can imagine, so many services, so many companies, so many people, how do you track what's happened? So the way you do it is, is through, okay, on-site builders or general contractors. But how do you control the, the digital process, like the documentation? 
How do you make sure that things are getting installed in the correct manner? How do you make sure that what your pet designed in the start, how does that equate to something in the end? And what, if you do it correctly and you have to have some sort of consultant through this process, you can say, I want to build this building. I want to capture all this information. I want to install it in this manner. And I'm going to have a digital replica of this. You're already paying for that when you build a building. So it makes complete sense. What a digital, like a project manager, a digital project manager will do for you is that they will federate the models, meaning they will bring all these different services, hydraulics, architecture, civil, mechanical, electrical, and they bring them together and into one federated model. And they might do this on a weekly basis while you're building and make sure that all the assets are being logged correctly. You're not going to have clash problems, so clash detection. So understanding where everything's going, making sure the services are all going in the right way. You have enough capacity, enough load, uh, make sure the foundations are all, all okay. You're not cutting through any sort of important parts of the floor. And then also just making sure the layout, the feel, everything's done correctly. This is incredibly valuable. And if you can capture all that digital data, great. If you can then tie the design documents to the same model, meaning the installation files, your design and commissioning figures, your manuals, your warranty. If you can put that all into the model, okay, let me clarify that. Not put it into the model, but link it to the model. You don't want to put it into the model because it becomes very bloated. I have some way where you can link it to this model because it's all geolocated. It's very structured and you're paying for this already. You're going to walk away at the end of this building process and you're going to have a digital twin. Now, some caveats to that. If you walk into the construction site, it might not look exactly like your model and BIM model. As soon as construction happens, we have a bit of a gap in our industry where the beautiful 3D model doesn't enter the construction floor and it's all printed 2D models and you have someone with a red texture, red line markup, and they're marking it up and, and, and changing everything. And, and there's different versions. And this is a, is a major problem. But it doesn't change the value of the digital twin. And that problem will be solved. You've got these you know, 3D capture cameras already where you can go around and, and capture the geometry of a space um, and can capture the layout and put it into a point cloud. You know, you're going around a space and you're capturing real images and you're geolocating them. So they're, they're perfectly placed. This technology is becoming more accessible. It's becoming cheaper. And if you can accurately track the services as they're being built and then compare it to the model, which you can do with augmented reality today, it's not like a crazy future tech, Eventually, and it's going to take time because the building industry, you'll be walking around with an iPad and you'll be able to, to look at the 3D model, the BIM model, and you'll be able to say, hey, those pipes are 20 mil off. You can do that today. And I've seen solutions doing it today. It's not done in every building today. That's the next step. But once that becomes more acceptable and a builder or a general contractor can just walk around and check all their services with one device, basically as they go, the importance of a digital twin is just increasing every day. Even though the value is already there just through collecting all the design and geolocations, the size, the weight, the asset information of a building. That's already so valuable for the construction process. And if you can help with the handover by making sure that all of that is collected on time and correctly, that is a huge cost to any builder or building owner. That can go on for years, that process. So if you can periodically track and trace that and show that you're capturing all the information live, which you can do. There's tools that do that today. That by itself is hugely valuable. So that, that's the design phase. So 
you can't argue that there's value there. That they're definitely. Let me stop um, you real quick. It sounds like you said the value is proven ten times over on the construction side, and but then there's this gap where there there might not be the value proven to. Well, it sounds like there's accuracy issues going from that construction to the operations, like what's actually in this building now. Yeah. And you're saying that gap is being closed. Is that how to understand it is like, we're now in this phase of making that justification to go from construction to operations, basically. And, and making that jump is like a big hurdle right now. It's, it's a big hurdle. And it's fascinating to me because you look at it and you say the digital twin is so valuable because it's so data rich. Now, the accuracy on site, that becomes a problem, not so much for its current value in the design and construction phase, because they have a process and it's working. I don't agree with it, but it works. Once this new solution closes that gap, that creates a new value in the construction phase, because it's a huge process to manage all the services and keep track of, is it being installed to design? Is it working? Is it in the right location? that's nearly unmanageable for a builder. I see. Um, it's also about like the commissioning and warranty getting exactly. it useful in there. Okay, got it. And so it all builds into a value there, but to your, your point, that's the missing link into operations as well. Even though it's adding extra value in the construction phase, it's also now bridging a, a link and, and creating a huge value for the operational phase. Because mm. now you have a fully accurate representation. And I don't want to overstate the inaccuracies. It's not drastic, but it's enough to say that there's an argument against that. So you really want to be able to say, we need to get that better. We need to make it easier and it can't rely on us having to create a new model. That becomes really difficult. Yeah, it sounds like if you create a gap between reality and the twin, now you have this effort to keep it updated. And if that effort continues to grow, you might abandon it. And so yeah. continuing to close that gap with reality is, is, seems like it's important. All right, so let's go to the operation side. So like, what's the value of a twin? And I, I guess what I'm seeing in the marketplace is if you already have this federated model and it's ready to be used in the operations phase and it's been cleaned up, that's a totally different value proposition than the existing building that has nothing digital and you have to spend a ton of capital budget to create this twin. So that, I guess there's two more arguments here with the twin as well. How do you think about that? So this was really such a difficult problem to face because one, you have a small amount of buildings that have a digital twin to start with. That's already a problem. So to go into an existing building, even if it's new and saying, hey, you want a digital twin, that's difficult. So that it's a difficult process because you don't have an army of contractors doing this work already to do a construction job. But going back to what we talked about earlier, if you try and take small bites, try and say the 3D model or the BIM model is very daunting to people, but it's also very misleading because it doesn't have as much value as the value comes from the data behind this. So first step is saying, okay, let's create a living asset register like a proper living asset register. Okay, I, I, do I want to do my whole building? No. Okay, let's do it periodically. You're paying people to maintain this equipment every single day. First step, get them to put it into a digital form. Digitize this process, not in their database, in your database. Or have it so it's accessible to you. First step, when is it being maintained? Track this. You need to be able to see that as a building owner. What are the costs? When is it breaking down? What's the live data? you've already just got four out of five major components of a digital twin. And 
if you just say, I would like the 3D model as well. Okay, great. But again, put it into your fit out schedule. Do it slowly. Don't go in and say, I'll just do every building. Because the, the payback is gonna, it's gonna take time. But it doesn't devalue a digital twin. It's still incredibly valuable at collecting the digital language that builds the value of a digital twin. Even in the construction phase, the 3D model component is a very small part of the value. It helps with the clash detection and all these things, of course, but the data in the BIM model, that's the value. So same in operations. I always say it needs to be part of your processes. So you're paying people to maintain your equipment. Make sure they do it in a way where you're collecting the data to form a digital twin. Mm -hmm. Then as you're doing upgrades, have a plan like we talked about before. Have your, your stretch goal of here. And then every time you do work, make sure that work's done in a way that enables it. And then eventually, if you want to get to 3D models, start very small with geometry. You just want to catch the, the floor space, the geometry, and the U-values, you know, the materials. With that, now you can start doing simulations. You've just opened up another world of possibilities that a digital twin enables. That's where that, if we go back to the very first point we made, is that's making sure that you have spoken to the customer, understand what they want to achieve, and then engage them to make sure that you're not overselling them something. So if they want a digital twin, maybe they just want a way to digitally manage their asset and look at all the information. Okay, mm -hmm. let's scale it back and slowly move up. Because if you oversell them, the value just, it, it reduces every time you try and oversell them on, on a solution. And so I think a digital twin is very valuable as long as you're not misled by what a digital twin is. The 3D views and these flying through in VR, great. Good for a, a marketing pitch, but the value comes from, hey, let's really, let's take the physical asset and have a digital replica. Now we can manage the building remotely. So it goes back again to the foundation, to all of this point comes back to data structure foundation. So I think it's incredibly valuable as long as you're not overselling what you're trying to achieve and not trying to do it too quickly. Yeah, that really ties together this whole conversation. It's like, why do you need a data model? Or, or really, as you're building a data model, what are you building up to? So you're taking each project you're doing in the building, you're taking this step, you're taking a step towards what? And mm -hmm. a lot of people are saying, I need a digital twin. That's not like you're basically grabbing at this shiny buzzword versus realizing what you want and then taking steps towards that. And I think it's hurting the digital twin conversation because what I hear a lot is like a digital twin is not feasible because the upfront cost is far too high. If, if I have a building that was built in 1982, creating a digital twin is too much of a capital expense for that building. And I, I think that's a little bit of a lie because like you said, if you just break it down into what is a digital twin and then there's these five categories, you can take incremental steps on those five categories and provide immediate value. So let's just use one example that we've talked about is, is modeling the data. So obviously a, a data model is a huge component of a digital twin. And so if you're taking steps in that main category of the twin, you're making progress towards a digital twin and you don't need to write it off as like this huge, massive project when you can just take steps towards it and, and get there eventually. Well, I love that. I actually hadn't thought about it like that before. So thank you. It, took, it really took me lots of conversations with customers to really say, okay, let's be realistic about this. How do we achieve it? And just one more point on this to say, don't devalue the 3D model, the BIM model either, because if you have it, you can do certain things and that has a lot of value as well. Like if you have your 3D model broken up into maintainable assets, now you have a visual representation 
where you can geolocate to that. You can, you can plan sizing replacements all remotely. You can do all of this work remotely. No longer you have to have an FM sitting in the building doing these plans or a consultant going to site. So there's, there's value there too, but if you break it down into sections, it, it, it all comes back down to a digitalization strategy. That, that's what it comes down to. And that's why we make fun of buzzwords, but it, it, that's what it's all aiming for. I want to take my physical assets and, and physical process and, and use technology to do them in a modern way. Digitize that process. Love it. Love it. All right. Cool. This is, and I just must say what we said offline a second ago is that if people find this episode long, like you can just pause it and you can come back yeah, to my it. Fault. But, but Tyson and I aren't going to stop talking just because people <laughs> like short podcasts and I'm not going to apologize for long podcasts. Anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about like where we're at in the world right now. So it's September, 2020. This podcast will come out sometime at the end of the month. So obviously we're still going through this big disruption in our industry uh, with mm. COVID. And I want to talk about what you're seeing in your conversations with your clients and what you're thinking about the implications and outlook for the smart buildings industry. Yeah, I, I've been having this conversation every day, I feel like. It's, okay. A lot of people have been asking, what does this mean for buildings in the future? Like the new normal you see a lot. I'm very curious because I was already seeing a trend in our market about a more sustainable approach in buildings but also a more care to the, the people within those buildings, the tenants or the, the users. The indoor environment quality, like this was Wells ratings. You've got reset in Asia. There's all these standards popping up and people starting to care about what is a healthy environment? What's a sustainable building? Not just energy savings, but CO2 reduction. People talked about this for years, but people were investing in it. Like they were really saying, I want to do this, I'm going to put money forward. And the paybacks don't have to be two or three years, like every mm. other project. So I, I was very surprised that this was occurring because historically people talked about these topics, but never really put money into them and at a big scale anyway. So this situation has really accelerated the process of why do we want to utilize our space to be as inviting as possible for our employees? Why do I want to make sure that my building is very sustainable, not just facades, not just fit outs, but really a sustainable and healthy building. And so this situation, the conversations I'm having with real estate managers and property owners now is I need a way to make my office space as compelling as possible. And if you talk to big enterprise customers, they want to be as attractive as possible to talent. A lot of big corporations now are saying you can work from home. You don't have to come back in. Even Siemens made a public statement saying that you can work from home 50 to 70% of the time now, even after the situation ends. Hmm. And so you're starting to see employees make these really grand statements about their employers, make these grand statements about their employees, and then they're backing it up. Like they're really investing to make sure that they can create a space that is healthy, sustainable, and inviting because they're going to have to. Because that office space, the traditional going into an office every day, it's not going to be the same for big enterprise companies. Like smaller companies, maybe. This will pass at some point. I don't know, maybe in 2029. And then from there, we can say, okay, no, but really, like when we can go back out and resume normal life, I don't think it's going to go back to complete normal life. It's proven that we can work from home effectively. The technology supports it. 
So to go back to the office, it's going to have to be inviting. It's going to be, have to be healthy. And historically, if you look at complaints within a building, it's always been hot or cold. Like I'm hot, I'm cold. 60, 70% of complaints are based around this. But if people understand what creates that environment, like what makes you feel stuffy, if it's poor airflow or if it's really poor humidity or actually like they painted in here a week ago, there's all these chemicals in the air. People are going to be much more conscious about the air they're breathing within the office space. And that is going to become a very high priority because after this, this will have some lasting effects. I don't know to what scale, but it, it, it's really going to change the conversation as I want to understand the air I'm breathing and is it, is it healthy? And we both know that a lot of buildings are not giving you healthy, clean air. It, it's poor ventilation. The filters aren't being changed enough. You're going back in there too early after it's all being painted. All of this stuff has quite severe long-term effects to the health. Same with lighting levels and occupancy. Now I go into the office to meet people, not to work. So when I'm in the office, I'm there to meet with my colleagues. That's going to be a pretty consistent message of big companies. So when you go to an office space, they have to cater for that. That's going to significantly change the requirements of these buildings as well. So I think I'm very fascinated to... I'm hoping we don't get five years from now and everyone's just forgotten about this situation and we're all you know, crammed back into an office five days a week. That's what I really hope. I don't think that's going to happen. This also really ties back to the whole value selling thing. It's like what you talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, which is you can't just sell on energy savings. You can't just sell on maintenance savings because what we're talking about here, if I understand you correctly, is how do you insert smart building technology, A or B or C, into the new operation of this building. And the new operation of this building is how do I keep my occupants safe? And I, I think that's what COVID has changed. And it now it, it turns into this, I don't care what you have to do, but do it. Like mm-hmm. it's no longer this give me a two-year payback thing. It's is this building going to even exist unless we make the occupants safe? And that's a totally different conversation that has really changed things a ton, which is really exciting. I've been reading some studies that say the, they're expecting a 30 to 40% reduction in required office space yeah. after this situation. If that's the case, that is now creating a very competitive environment. So that means investment in technology. It means it's going to be investment in creating really inviting spaces. It, it's going to benefit the users dramatically, but they're going to have to really answer some tough questions and invest some money. And so I'm very interested to see how this all plays out. And I really believe that this will be a huge driver to a true smart building. Something yeah. that you know, we've talked about for many years, but where you, where you have that complete package and it's focusing on creating a environment for the person. And that doesn't really come into account when you design these systems. It also makes that investment in comfy look pretty smart at this point. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, all right. Let's, we've already talked about a ton of things you're excited about, but uh, there's a couple more things I wanted to ask you about that, are, that have been on your mind. So you talked about indoor air quality a little bit, but like what else are you excited about moving forward with the solutions and selling around that? Yeah, there's so many, there's so many companies out there and I've been trying a few solutions. and It's fascinating to me because if you look at, and maybe I'm just like, blinded by my, my own world but if you track the the indoor thing, the sensors that are available and if you track them on a typical office space or even in your own home it's insane what like happening in these spaces 
Okay. And there's a great use case I had where a colleague of mine moved into a new apartment and was really just not sleeping well, started waking up with like sore throats. And he saw that I was trialing some sensors and we put them into his house and found that periods of the day when he wasn't there, there was this huge chemical spike. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it basically came from like somewhere down in like the sewage. But every day when he wasn't home and it didn't leave a smell or an odor by the time he got there, but it was maybe cleaning product or something like that. And it was coming into his apartment and he had a young baby and he was like struggling and sleeping. And then he tracked it and he found this like incredible spike to the point where I got an alert and I called him like, are you in the house? Get out of the house. And then you look at the the repercussions of this stuff. It's long-term and we don't track it today. We don't track it at all. Like you might spot check these values, but you do not long-term track these things. Wow. Um, What kind of sensor are you talking about here? And this is something anyone could buy right now. Yeah, there's heaps of products on the market. Like, I won't go into any companies, I guess, but like, there's a few that really do some interesting things. They track like particulates in the air, CO2, temperature, light, humidity. Yeah, maybe radon. Like, there's a few of these chemicals that they kind of track. If you look mm-hmm. at Wells certification or Reset, very big in, in Asia specifically, these values that they're tracking, this is what you want to be able to look at because it can tell you like chemicals in the air, the air quality, oxygen you're breathing. I've seen some office spaces from our customers where your CO2 levels are not great when you're in a meeting room for more than 20 minutes. And I'm sure we've all been there where you're sleeping at the desk basically while you're listening to in a long meeting. It's because you're getting like restricted oxygen. So this is, it's, it's a serious problem and, and the buildings aren't always designed with this in mind. And this is where I think the sensors enable the, the audience to be educated and that will be the driving force. And that's why standards and certifications are very successful drivers where if you have, especially if it's government driven, but if you can measure the value of something in terms of you've got a, a very healthy building, if you can measure that, put it onto a plaque or some sort of rating system, that has inherent value for the building now. That's value per square meter. That's, that's like painting your walls. That right. adds value to that building. So it's really important that we have some sort of measurement for this because at the moment, the argument has always been, yeah, what's the payback? So Is this where you see reset going? Because reset has an ongoing data aspect to it, doesn't it? So is where you see reset going where it's not only, if you think about the certifications of the past, you're certifying a construction project, essentially, if you're doing lead or things like that. But the way I don't have any direct experience with reset, but is that where they're headed is some sort of real-time dashboard, like as a plaque, like replacing the plaque at the front, which is here's the current data on this building? Yeah, exactly. And you nailed that point though, because we have this rating system in Australia I think I spoke about it with Nicholas in his podcast recently, but we talked about this where you had a neighbors. So it's an energy efficiency system okay. uh, rating tool. And it, it's just fair. Like it's a per square meter. You're not buying credits. You can't install bike racks or anything. It's just, are you efficient as a building? Energy mm-hmm. efficient. And it became a government initiative. Had to be included on all these commercial office buildings for, uh, I think it was something like if you wanted a government uh, contract in terms of uh, lease field by a government agent department sorry you had to be above four stars out of six stars and every year you had to get recertified so every single year it it was panic stations if you dropped your rating in some cases it would was directly written to the lease how much money they paid is based on the neighbor's rating whoa 
And this is the single most successful thing I've seen to drive energy efficiency. And that's why you wow. see all these Australian startups come from that market. That's been a really big influence, in my opinion, on, okay. on why you see so many of these startups come from Australia. That and we're also just great. Awesome people. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's really fascinating. So could we see a future then where you would have leases dependent on a reset rating, essentially? Definitely. Yeah, that's I think where that's it's good. going to. If I was an employer, I, if, if I had to manage some sort of lease agreement, I would be saying, okay, one, I want you to be sustainable. I, I want a very low carbon footprint, carbon neutral. And, mm. and I don't know if you've seen this, there's this great website called RE100. And it's all the big enterprise companies that have committed to a carbon neutral target. And mm -hmm. there's hundreds, if not thousands of these companies. I love this. I love seeing this because it's publicly stating, I'm going to do this and I'm going to invest in it. You'd want to see the same thing in terms of healthy buildings. And that will happen once people understand what it means. What do I need to measure to be able to do this? And that's why all these great companies that are coming up with these sensors to go into these spaces and, and, and the traditional companies as well, where they can say, I want to measure as much value, as much indoor environment quality. I'm going to measure these values as much as possible. That is the first step. The second step is saying like tying a value to it because a customer is going to ask you, okay, that's nice, but I need to spend a lot of money to fix that. So that the drive needs to come from the other way. It has to come from the tenants. So it has to be part of lease agreements, has to be some sort of standard. And there's a bunch out there. I really would love a standard that is year on year as mm -hmm. fair as possible and not so much around the, the design and the look and the feel of the building. I think that is, is quite obvious when you can interact with it and see it. The, the standard should be really around, let's make this healthy. Let's make this sustainable and, and bring those worlds together. There's a few out there too, and they're, they're all doing quite good. Love it. Okay. That'll be something to continue to track and keep updated on. I love that. All right. We're nearing the end of our, our marathon session here. I, I do. So something that I thought of that when you were just talking is that we, we were, were talking about two things that are in conflict with each other. And so optimizing for mm. energy, but then optimizing for indoor air quality. And I think I've been saying that like since the pandemic began, which is if we're going to increase ventilation, we're also going to increase energy usage. And we've done different podcasts about this topic in the past. We don't need to get into it, but like, how are you thinking about that dichotomy or battle right now? It's, it goes against every fiber of my being. Yes. I'm um, giving up all these energy savings. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, but it, it's justified. So if I've done some work with some of the engineers and we expect like anywhere to 15 to 40% increase in energy to, yeah. to hit the, the requirements, depending on your building, of course, <laughs> it's difficult, but that's, I think, leads perfectly into the next point is, yes, energy savings is important in terms of dollar value per kilowatt hour, but that's about tuning and, and getting the most out of your building. When you can't do that, okay, you need to invest in your plan because you need to reduce your carbon footprint. So if you mm -hmm. can't tune your building to be super efficient, then you need to upgrade your building. And that's the logical next step. Um, we're seeing now, and going back again, to this change in environment and, and the customers completely changing their mentality they're coming to us and saying we want to be carbon neutral how can you help with that and let's extend the payback periods let's bring them out significantly no two-year payback periods anymore like let's really let's go for the long haul because we have these targets and we need to hit them and there's two responsible parties here i think it's like, of course the companies doing this but the government's also somewhat responsible 
if you look at the price of electricity in certain countries, it's ridiculous. I saw in Australia, we had a, a carbon tax for, for a very small period of time until the prime minister lost power. And it was dramatic, the investment that went into reducing energy. Like I've never seen anything like it. And it's a small increase for the day-to-day people in terms of energy bills, a few dollars every month. But for corporations, it is huge. And so it should be. There should be a price if you're going to use this power. So I think there's a responsibility for governments and then for companies to say, even if we have negotiated a ridiculous cost per kilowatt hour, we can't judge projects off that. If you're paying a very low cost for this, you need to be able to say, okay, we need to set it higher no matter what, even if we're not paying it, set it higher. I'm not saying they have to pay more, but I'm saying they should budget at a higher cost per kilowatt hour because even if it's not a good payback with your current, the cost is going to go up and there's going to be long-term effects here. So one, you, you ethically, you should try and invest in this, but two, it's going to cost you long-term. So get ahead of it now. So but we are seeing customers go CO2 reductions, the highest priority, energy savings, also a high priority, but not the first priority, which is a huge, shift. a huge. Shift. Love it. All right. Thanks, man. This has been awesome Fun. conversation. Anything else you want to talk about? We talked about everything under the sun. Honestly, that went very quickly for me. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Hopefully for the listeners, hopefully people can press pause if we talked longer than your morning walk with the dog or your commute if people have commutes. But this has been fascinating, Tyson. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I'll have to have you back again to talk about some, maybe one of these topics in particular in a couple months or something. So thanks, man. And just, I just want to say, the work you're doing with the Nexus podcast and your weekly articles and the community, I love it. I love that there's a bunch of building nerds that can now meet regularly and talk about these topics and people actually care. Yeah, they absolutely do. We have a passionate group of people, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And now I'm frequently messaging people about questions and topics from that community. So the one thing that that I'm loving too is it it seems like people are connecting and I don't even need to be involved. It's like they're meeting each other and then they go off and have a conversation and and then I hear about it and I'm like, that's amazing. Oh man, it's so cool. Yeah. So thanks for being a part of it and uh, help build it up. Appreciate it. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.